You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Uh, before we uh, get into that text, I want you to hear some um, really painful words. Uh, this is from a true story. This is from an actual person. Listen to these words. I discovered the truth on September 22nd, 2012. I guess the truth had been haunting me despite a happy marriage and three amazing kids. There was something wrong. Funny thing is, I thought I was unhappy with my job or something. No idea that the root of my unhappiness and insecurity was stemming from my seemingly perfect marriage. But there I was at 2 a.m., going through his emails, trying to find something, and then I saw the email to her. It read, I miss you. Why would he tell another woman that he missed her? And why did he email her a photo of my children? And why was her comment that it wasn't like the other photos that they've been sharing? My heart was pounding. My body was shaking. And then I found it. An illicit photo downloaded from Tumblr, an email to another account, another account I didn't recognize. It took less than two minutes to hack into the account, and as my computer screen refreshed, I prayed that all I would find was some erotic photos, but I didn't. I found 73 pages of emails from her to my husband, detailing a year-long affair. I wanted to scream, but my husband was out of town, away for the weekend, so I couldn't even scream at him, so I just sobbed in my bed alone, wondering how and why we got to this point. And I knew I shouldn't torture myself with the emails, but I began to read them, picking dates that had meaning to me. Did he write her on my birthday, our anniversary, Valentine's Day? Was he responding to her or initiating to her the emails? The questions were flooding into my brain. I got physically sick. I couldn't sleep. I'd never felt pain like this before, ever. It went straight to my core. I love this man. I gave him everything. So how could a man who looked me in the eye and said I would, he would never risk losing me have an affair? That is betrayal of the worst kind. That is make you want to throw up kind of betrayal. But here's the deal. If you, if you and I don't attempt at least to understand the pain of that kind of betrayal— then we'll never understand God's love for His people. That's the message of Hosea. We are spending this summer as a church walking through the 12 minor prophets, and Hosea is actually one of the longest of the minor prophets. It's 14 chapters long, so it's a little bit surprising maybe to you that we only read chapter 3, which is only five verses long. James Montgomery Boyce uh, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia until he passed away back in the year 2000. Uh, he said that Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Aren't you, aren't you glad you came to church today, if he's right? You're missing the beginning of the World Cup game, I know. Aren't you glad? Because we can only go downhill after today, right? All the other chapters are not going to be as good. Uh, I realize I'm setting myself up for failure here. Um, I did not say this is going to be the greatest sermon ever. It's this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. The reason it's such a great chapter is because it, it encapsulates really the whole essence of the book of Hosea. 
Uh, it actually encapsulates the whole essence uh, of, of the central story of the entire Bible. One of the chief metaphors that the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God is this metaphor of marriage. We see it all over the Bible. We see it all over the prophets, in fact. Isaiah 54, fear not, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Jeremiah 2, thus says the Lord to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride. Ezekiel 16, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Isaiah 62, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And I love that image from Isaiah of the bridegroom rejoicing over the bride, because we know what he's talking about, because we go go to a lot of weddings. I know this church. A lot of you are going to like 10 weddings this summer alone, and you know the drill. When those doors open at the back, you stand so that as this bride comes down that aisle in all her glory, in all her radiance, you might get a glimpse of her. But you know who's looking at her most intensely, most intently. It's the guy standing right down here. It's the bridegroom. And I love to watch him watching her because his emotions betray, you know, his face betrays his emotions. You know, sometimes he's crying. Sometimes he's just beaming with a big smile. Sometimes he's just deer in the headlights, right? (laughs) But whatever the emotion on his face, it's rooted in joy because this is the most joyous moment in his life because he's thinking, I've never seen anyone so beautiful. He's thinking, I would give my, I would do anything for her. She is my greatest joy. And that moment, Isaiah says, captures the way that God looks at his people. He rejoices over his people as a bridegroom would his bride. There's a lot of actually other important metaphors in the Bible that describe our relationship with God. Uh, He's the king, we're the citizens. He's the shepherd, we're, we're his sheep. He's the father, we're his children. But none of them capture uh, the depth uh, of describing the way that God loves us, like the metaphor of marriage. And I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, God wants a relationship with us that's so intensely personal and intimate, and at the same time, so binding and so enduring that we can't understand God's love for us unless we understand Him as our bridegroom. See, just to know Him as king just to know him as shepherd, just to know him as father, misses the intensity and the enduring nature of his love. And so we have to see him as our husband, which brings us to Hosea. I want us just to consider two things from the book of Hosea today. The unfaithful bride and then the faithful bridegroom, all right? Turn to Hosea 3 if you're not already there. I want us to look first at the unfaithful bride. Hosea 3. Hosea is this prophet who was called to practice what he preaches in kind of a shocking way, actually in a way that ought to be disturbing to you and me. Uh, God had come to Hosea and said, hey, we're going to put on a little play, a little drama for the people of God. But it's not going to be fake. It's not going to be play acting. It's going to be real life drama. Hosea, you're going to play the part of me, God, and your wife is going to play the part of Israel, my people. And God says to Hosea, you know, I am so serious about my people understanding my love for them that I'm going to call you to, I'm going to, call you to something, Hosea, that's really, really difficult. Hosea 3 verse 1, and the Lord said to me, go again 
Hold on to that word again. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. He says to her, go again, which, which tells us that, that we're picking up in the middle of the story here. Because in chapter 1, Hosea had already told uh, Hosea, or, uh, God had already told Hosea to go and love this same woman. Uh, if you look at verse 2 in chapter 1, he had pointed out, he, you know, in chapter 1, he does a little matchmaking. He points out, he says, Hosea, there's, I want you to see this woman. Her name is Gomer. Uh, that's the one for you. That's your girl. You're going to marry her. And on top of that, she's going to have major issues, right? Not just a weird first name. She's going to have major issues. And he spells it out in verse 2 of chapter 1. He gives him the, the what and the why of, of his calling to Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. That's the what of his call. Go marry this woman. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to have illegitimate children. She's going to break your heart. How would you like that mission? Here's the why of the calling. Second part of the verse. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. God, why are you calling me to do this? Why are you calling Hosea to do this? The reason is because my people act just like that wife. They are adulterous. They've cheated on me. God is saying to Hosea, you're gonna, you are going to know and experience what I know and experience. And, you, and you, to, for you to be a prophet, for you to communicate the reality of my love to my people, you need to, you need to feel what I'm feeling, and you need to understand what it means to love my people. And so you're going to feel it. And your, your message, Hosea, is going to have deep conviction and great power because you will experience it firsthand. And that's what happens. Hosea, in chapter 1, marries Gomer. She is immediately unfaithful. She has three children in chapter 1. At least two of them are not Hosea's children. She has a son, then a daughter, then another son. The third child, the, 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 the son, uh, is named Loami. You know what that means? It means not mine. Hosea named his child, not mine. So every time he held this little baby in his arms, it was a painful reminder that his wife was running around on him. He, he lived with this constant ache that his wife was unfaithful to him. Because Gomer began to spiral out of control, and it's sort of a downward spiral. If you look at Hosea chapter 2, in verse 5, listen to what it, how he describes her. It says, For their mother has played the whore, And she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. She's she's pursuing, she's running after lesser lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. She is in pursuit of these lesser lovers because she thinks that they're going to give her everything she desires. And she's got these insatiable desires and she's seeking everywhere except for at home to have these desires fulfilled. And then she begins to sell herself that these desires might be met. She begins to prostitute herself. And then by the time we get to chapter 3, we see that she's not only selling herself, she's for sale by someone else. She is in bondage. It's this downward spiral. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 2, it says, she'll pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them. She will seek them, but she will not 
find them. In other words, she is running after these lesser lovers, but they never become hers. She never gets them. They never love her back. In fact, they only just end up using her. Now, what is God saying to us through Gomer? I think he's saying, that's how my people treat me. They run after lesser lovers. In Hosea's day, Israel had fallen into um, the worship of Baal. Baal was this pagan god that the surrounding nations believed was in charge of agriculture, rainfall, fertility. Uh, And the worship of Baal was very sexual in nature. Uh, You would uh, go to a a shrine uh, to Baal. Uh, You would pick out a cult prostitute there at the shrine. Uh, You would have sexual relations. And then you would pray to Baal that he would respond in kind by giving your land great fertility. That's how far Israel had fallen. It it wasn't just idolatry. It was adultery. It It was utter betrayal. They would, uh, it says in Hosea 16, uh, they, they were mixing the worship of the true God with this false pagan worship to the point that they didn't even, they couldn't tell where one began and the other ended, right? It's called syncretism. They were mingling false worship and true worship. And in Hosea 2.16, it says that they were calling the one true God, my Baal, as if the one true God is just some super Baal. It was betrayal. And if we don't understand this image, I think Hosea is trying to tell us, then we will not understand the impact of our sin on God. Because when a king, you know, when a king sees a citizen break a law, it might make him a little bit mad, but, you know, there's a penalty for that. There's laws in place. Or when a shepherd sees a sheep go astray, wander off, he's going, ah, sheep, you know, they're dumb. But he goes and gets them. But it doesn't really affect him emotionally. When a father uh, is disobeyed by his child, he might get angry. He might be concerned for the character of his child. He disciplines that child for their good. But when your spouse, the one you love most in the world, runs into the arms of another lover, that is the deepest pain imaginable. That is pain to the core. That's betrayal. Our sin, um, according to Hosea, is heartbreaking to God because we're married to Him. He's joined Himself to us as His people. And when we turn to something else or someone else in worship, it's betrayal. So, let me ask you something. How might you be running after lesser lovers in your life? Like, maybe you haven't run as far away from God as as Gomer has run from Hosea. You're not in all-out spiritual adultery. But are you perhaps flirting with other gods? You know how an affair begins? An affair begins with tiny little infidelities. No one wakes up one morning and says, you know what, today I'm just going to cheat on my spouse. I'm getting a hotel room, and this thing's going down. That's not how it works. Affairs always start with little infidelities. The little emotional rush when you connect in conversation. The the thrill of being out of bounds when you send that text message. The hidden emails. The hidden phone calls. The long work lunches. And so, 
Are you flirting with something in your life that might become more important to you than God? Maybe it already is. A lot of times these are good things. Your career, your status, your achievements, making money, being married, raising kids, politics, entertainment, hobbies. Have any of these things become something that you are running after? Because you see, all of those things promise life and satisfaction to us. And so we, we, we tend to pursue them looking for those things. Problem is, we get to the point where we need more and more. And so we start with little infidelities, but before long, we're just pursuing them all the time out in the open, brazenly, and we sell ourselves for these lesser lovers, like Gomer did. The prophet Jeremiah said this to God's people. He said, you beautify yourself for your lovers, but it's in vain because your lovers despise you. They seek your life. He says, you're trying to make, you're putting on makeup, trying to make yourself look pretty for all these lovers, but they hate you. They, they, they're not going to save you and give you life. They can't. They're false gods. They suck life out of you. Life, according to the prophets, is only found within the bounds of the covenant, in the arms of our true lover. And so let's look at the true lover for a moment, because Hosea doesn't just talk about the unfaithful bride. Hosea talks about the faithful bridegroom. Look back at Hosea 3. Gomer had left Hosea. She bailed on the marriage covenant. She spiraled out of control further and further into disrepute. Uh, She was not just unfaithful. She was an embarrassment. It was embarrassing to be associated with this woman. Hosea had grounds for divorce. He could have divorced her. But God says, no, I want you to go get her. Go get her. Look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. These were kind of an aphrodisiac. They were used apparently in pagan worship. Verse 2, so I bought her. She's for sale. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. She is for sale as a slave. This is, how, this is how low things had gotten for Gomer. One of the common ways to become a slave in that day was through debt, and that's probably how she ended up in slavery. She was left with nothing. Her lovers had turned on her. Now one of them owned her, and he didn't want her anymore, so he put her up for sale. And in that, in that culture, what was, it was likely that a, a slave like this was sold publicly in a marketplace at auction. And what they would do is they would, they would send, uh, you know, kind of across a platform, they would send these men and these women that were for sale uh, naked or, or largely unclothed. Because you're going to buy a slave, you've got to see what you're getting. And so imagine the scene. So, so Gomer is pushed, she's for sale, and she is, she's pushed to the front on this platform, naked, all her dignity has been stripped away, she's totally exposed, this is the, this is, her shame and her guilt uh, are complete at this point. And I imagine she couldn't cover herself, so I imagine she closed her eyes, and the bidding began. Ten shekels, I'll give you eleven shekels for her, twelve shekels, twelve and a half, And then she hears this familiar voice. It's the voice of her husband. And so she opens her eyes, and she scans the crowd, and there he is, 
There's Hosea. What is he doing here? It's so embarrassing. Why is he here? But he's in a bidding war with this other guy. And this other guy says, 15 shekels. And he says, 15 shekels and a homer and a half of barley. And it's silent. There's no other bids. And it's sold to Hosea. Come take her. She's yours. And he goes up and he covers her nakedness and he takes her away. Now at that point, Gomer belonged to Hosea as his property. He had the right legally in that society to do with, it, do with her whatever he wanted to. He could kill her. He could put her to work. He could sell her again. And I imagine Gomer thought the worst was in store for her. He's bought me to punish me. Like, he wants to make me as miserable as I've made him. He wants revenge on me. But look at what happens in verse 3. Watch this. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now, that wording there is a little strange. In fact, most of the English translations of this verse kind of make it difficult to understand what is, what is Hosea saying. I actually think the New Living Translation captures it most simply. Here's the New Living Translation of, of verse 3. Then I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even me. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, I want you to dwell with me. I want you to live with me in my house as my wife, not as my slave. I did not buy you to be my slave. I bought you to be my wife, and I want you to dwell with me. I will be your your husband, and you will be my wife. But he also is saying to her, we got some relational restoration, reparation work to do. We got some hard work to do. Uh, So there's not going to be immediate intimacy this, this is not going to be just, you know, magically all okay, uh, but, but we're going to do some hard work uh, together. And I love the realism of this, right? This is not some sort of sen- sentimental, just naive sappiness. Gilmer, I always knew you were the one for me. Let's go build our dreams together, right? He's not, he's not saying that kind of thing. He's saying, I'm going to do the hard work of restoring our relationship, and I want to do it with you in my home together. It's love. It's real love. It's radical love. If you remember that uh, woman I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, her husband cheated on her, but she wanted to keep her marriage together. And so she continues to write. She says, so here I am 35 days after I found out about my husband's affair. We're still married, living in the same house, sleeping in the same bed, and we're still in love. We've spent every night for the past 35 days talking, talking through the pain, through the tears, through the anger, through the fears. He takes responsibility for his decisions and actions. He was self-destructive, and he failed to recognize that the real devastation was to me, his wife. He may live with the guilt, but I live with the pain, the endless images in my mind, the triggers that catch me off guard, and the sadness that fills my heart. See, she loves him. It's just not an ooey-gooey kind of love. It is, I will love you 
and I will keep us together no matter how painful it is and no matter what I got to do and no, no matter how much it hurts. It's that kind of love. It's the kind of love that God has for his people. It's costly love. Because what does it cost that woman to stay with her husband? What does it cost that woman at night to pull back the covers and climb in the same bed with this man that's cheated on her? She's got to give up her pride. She's got to give up her desire for revenge. She's got to give up her hurt, her pain. For her to love him, she's got to take the hit, right? She's got to take the hit. It's substitutionary sacrifice. It's her for him to save the relationship. And when we get to the end of Hosea 3, the last two verses, verses 4 and 5, we begin to see how Hosea's love was just a mirror image of God's love. You know, just as God, as Hosea was betrayed, so God was betrayed. Just as Hosea went and bought his wife back and brought her home, so does God. Look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. God's saying, Israel, you're going to dwell with me. I'm going to be your God, uh, and you're going to be my people, but you're not going to have all the stuff that you've had. You're not going to have the kings and the princes anymore because those are the ones that were leading you astray. You're not going to have the sacrifices anymore because you, were, you stopped sacrificing to me and began to sacrifice to Baal. You're not going to have these pillars, these, these things you erected for false gods. You're not going to have the ephod because you began to use that superstitiously. You're not going to have these household idols because they're false gods. And they're forbidden. And God said, I'm going to take away, I'm going to purge these things from you, not because I hate you, but because I love you because I want to restore you. And so incidentally, there might be some things in your life and in my life that need to be purged, right? And it means, it means that God loves us. If you find yourself that God is purging your life in some way, it's not, it's not incompatible with His love. It might be just the very thing that evidences his love, that he's willing to stick with you, that he's willing to get in there, to invite you in, to do the hard work, to sanctify you, to set you apart, to do as Ephesians 5 says, to present his bride in splendor without wrinkle or spot or stain in perfection. He loves you. Because if he bought his wife back at full price, why would he not perfect her? Why would he not bring her to perfection? Now, how did God buy his bride back? We know the answer to that now, but what was Hosea driving to? Actually, the whole book of Hosea is pointing to the fact that God would buy back his bride. Look at verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and they'll seek David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. He says they'll seek the Lord and David their king. King David had actually died a couple hundred years, maybe 300 years before Hosea said this. So what does he mean when he's talking about David's king? Well, we know today from our vantage point in history that he's talking about a descendant of David who would be king. And we know that Jesus of Nazareth was a descendant of King David. It's really interesting, though, how Jesus self-identified. Uh, he was not only the son of David. Uh, in Matthew 9, this is how he identifies himself. Some, some people are talking to him about fasting, and they say, hey, how come, Jesus, how come you and your disciples don't fast like John the Baptist and the Pharisees and all those guys? Why, why don't you fast? And Jesus has a really curious response. He says, uh, the, the wedding guests, they don't, they don't mourn, they don't fast when we're, they're with the bridegroom. 
But, but the bridegroom is one day going to be taken away, and then they'll fast. So Jesus calls himself the bridegroom, which was stunning to the audience there because they all knew the prophets, and the prophets all said that God himself is the bridegroom. But Jesus said, no, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the, I'm the one who runs after the bride uh, at great cost to himself and buys her back, which is exactly what happened, isn't it? See, you and I are Gomer. We're up on the auction block for sale. We're being auctioned. James Boyce says that the, the, the world is bidding for us, bidding fame, wealth, prestige, influence, power, all the world's currency. But God sent His Son into the marketplace, and in a public display of love, He became the highest bidder. He was willing to pay the highest price. He was willing to give His life for ours, substitutionary sacrifice to save the relationship. He bought us, and then He came and He clothed our nakedness with His righteousness, and He took us home to dwell with Him to perfect us. Isn't that great? Hosea 2.16, in that day, declares the Lord, you will no longer call me my Baal, you will call me my husband. So in Christ, God separates us from our lesser lovers, from all our Baals, and He joins us to Himself. That's how God loves people. God who was betrayed ran after the betrayers, those who forsake the ones who made, made them, with his unshakable love, he ran after them. And so you might be sitting here thinking, I've never, I don't think I've ever known love like that, or I haven't believed that that kind of love exists. It does. Would you turn to Jesus and rest in his love? That's where the, that kind of love is found. Some of you, probably most of you are sitting here saying, I've experienced this kind of love, but I feel the temptation to run off, to flirt with lesser lovers. And so I'm saying to you, would you always continue to rest in, in his arms, in the arms of his love, the true bridegroom? Would you live a life of repentance and faith? Would you live a life of continual renewal of your marriage vows? Because true life is only found in the arms of the true bridegroom. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.